Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to a very special episode of my podcast, Exactly. Today is all about my novel Girl Crush that came out back in August. I've been receiving hundreds of questions from all of you, probably since I published my first book, Women Don't Know You Pretty, asking about the publishing industry, um, which from the outside looks like this unsurmountable task. Even finishing or completing a novel or a nonfiction book, a poetry collection, anything that you want to complete seems like this impossible task. And today I'm going to be chatting about my novel, the process of writing both of my books, Uh, how I came to write a book in the first place with my incredible book agent, Abigail Bergstrom from Bergstrom Studios. And I highly recommend anyone go check out her work and her page. If you're thinking of writing a book, you don't know where to begin, please go to Bergstrom Studios. She's incredible and she's changed my life. And I'll also be chatting with my book editor, Romilly Morgan. Romilly has edited both of my books, Women Don't Know You Pretty and Girl Crush. She's a fucking rocket. If a human being was a rocket, it would be Romilly Morgan. She's absolutely incredible. She gets the best out of me every single time with my work. And I can't wait to chat with them both today about the process of writing a book. What everyone wants to know is how to get into the publishing industry, how to write a novel. It's basically probably one of my most asked questions on Instagram that people ask me is, how do you get into the publishing industry? Because it feels like a fucking mountain. Um, so can you both give me a bit of a description of what you do? So so yeah, I'm I'm a literary agent and I run a publishing consultancy literary agency, which is all about demystifying uh, the publishing industry and making it more accessible and explaining it to people and giving people more access in terms of writing and getting published. Exactly. The reason, you know, you say you get asked that question a lot. I think publishing is really confusing. Mm-hmm. I think it really is. It's full of weird quirks, idiosyncrasies. How do you get in? How do you get access? How do you write a proposal? You know, all of those conversations, all of those, the kind of first stage, the first access point of publishing Mm -hmm. is really hidden. And I think it's something I feel very passionately about in terms of creating more access. So the role of an agent, which is my job, is to work with um, my client, the author, work with them on coming up with the idea and effectively creating like a pitch document. Mm -hmm. So this could be a nonfiction proposal. Um, Sometimes it's a fully written manuscript. And I help develop that to a point, create some positioning and sell it in mm-hmm. to publishers. And there's different degrees of that, isn't there? isn't there? Sometimes you might just be a sounding board for someone with their ideas and then you just kind of help them create something. Definitely, yeah. And then I send it out on submission to people like Romilly, who work at the publishing house, you know, to, to lots of different publishers. And then the role of the agent is not only to manage the commercial elements, negotiate the deal and the contract and all of that they're responsible for, but also being part of the process through mm-hmm. from ideation all the way through to publication and beyond. So we're in every PR and marketing meeting, we're in every meeting about production, covers, etc. And we're there to manage the relationship between order, uh, editor and author um, and just make sure everything runs seamlessly. Gorgeous. And Romilly? What I do is I'm a publisher and I have an imprint called Brazen, which you're published mm-hmm. on. <laughs> um, and the ethos of the imprint, an imprint is like a small publishing house, like essentially. It's just like a small publishing house within a publishing house. Um, And my ethos is books with bite. Um, And I published Women Don't Pretty and now Girl Crush. Uh, I published books by Fern Brady, Self Esteem, Aja Barber. My role is to be a cheerleader and a whip cracker. So as soon (laughs) as the book comes onto my desk, um, or actually more like importantly on my laptop from agents, I get inundated every day with 
um, proposals from agents like Abby, but with like Abby's, I'm always quite excited. Um, <laughs> and I then get to choose what books I want to publish. So I publish around 10 books a year. And I am like Abby, I am the person in the building, like with my author every step of the way. So mm-hmm. I edit their book, mm-hmm. I get them hopefully a killer cover. I <laughs> always, get always. <laughs> I get them like killer marketing. Um, and I'm like, their absolute kind of their person on the ground every day making sure that my company and my and everyone in the company is like hyped up about Mm. the book Mm -hmm. and that they are all propelling themselves further than they could usually go to like bring that book into the like broadest possible markets Mm. so yeah it's just like it's really ingrained that you've you've got to know it so well haven't you Flora through the process I have got to know it but I feel like my my getting to know the publishing industry I feel very lucky with the way of gotten to know it because I feel very protected by the people in my team by both of you and I feel like it, my introduction to I had nothing to compare it to uh, where, where I come in is like the creative spiral of like and you know this yourself as an author and you've you've worked with um, a book agent as well mm-hmm. it's like you have all of these ideas and then you also need the guide of um, the knowledge and the expertise that you have. And I think that that's something I'm learning about myself is as a creative person, I can have all of these ideas and then I also need the... um, Because some people... Uh, try to get self-published or they don't want a book agent and all that kind of stuff but I think mm-hmm. I need the structure and the the industry insight to be able to craft something mm-hmm. that's going to be good for my audience good for myself so let's start off with Women Don't Know You Pretty and yeah. how the book came to be um, do you want to talk a bit about how you found me and approached me slid, <laughs> slid into your DMs yes. the good old sexy classy way <laughs> um, I remember just being kind of watching in awe everything that you were doing for that campaign against Netflix that was a fat shaming um, about a young girl I think who went back to school and had lost loads of weight and as a result mm-hmm. her whole life kind of within that school so changed yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I remember I'd kind of been following your illustrations because I just thought they were really cool and uh, watching that and watching you grow and I just was like this person has got a voice they've got something fresh they've got something new to say and I'd uh, published and then actually consequently gone on to represent Laura Bates Everyday Sexism which was kind of a you know, a huge feminist social movement on social media. Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of taps into what Romilly was saying. Before, publishers had full domination in terms of what they would publish okay. and they could decide. And what happened with social media is the audience started to tell publishers what they wanted to read mm-hmm. and who they wanted to hear from. And they would gather, you know, around these kind of sound boxes, platforms, yeah. and there would be there would be kind of trends and there would be information available to publishers in terms of who who they wanted to hear from, what ideas were resonating, what trends were happening. And that was an incredibly exciting time for publishing. Certainly for me, I think that was where my uh, career began because that's the way I worked. I was approaching people that were doing something cool, that were doing something interesting, that were talking about something in a new way that I hadn't heard before or approaching something in a, in a way that was slightly different. Um, so that was what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And I came to you and I said, you know, do you, I would, do you want to write a book? I would love to work with you. Mm-hmm. Do you have any ideas? I remember, um, I had a meeting with you in Soho. Yes. And I just met my management mm-hmm. and you were working with them on something also. And it was all like divine timing. Yes. Everything was like, oh, you're working with my management. Yes. I'm working, you've messaged me. You didn't even know I was working with them. And you'd, no. anyway, um, and I just remember you approached me like, 
think you should write a book. I think yeah. it's really good. And and the the ideas that um, I was coming to at the beginning yeah. were so different to how Women Don't Be Pretty actually turned out to be. Yes. So can you talk a bit about that process? So I wrote the book proposal. Yeah. Uh, we sent it back and forth mm-hmm. until we got it perfected. Exactly. And then you sent it out to publishers. And then yes. what happens then? So I submit it to publishers. I call up, you know, I'm, I'm meeting with editors day in, day out, constantly having conversations. I'm watching the market. I'm seeing what's working. I'm listening to what publishers are looking for. Um, and so I call up Romilly and various other editors and I'm like, hi, this is what I this is what I'm sending out on submission. This is the proposition. It's really exciting. You know, really get them excited about the project, about the author, and of course about the commercial uh, possibilities behind a project. That then goes in-house and an editor takes it forward to an editorial meeting where if the other editors agree with the project and want to sign off on it, it can then go forward to acquisitions meeting with an editor. And Romley will talk more about this later, I'm sure. The editor will draw up sales figures, P&L, and effectively go into a, a boardroom where the publisher is, where the head of marketing is, where the head of production is, basically all the top bods in the company, and pitch, this is the book. This mm-hmm. is how where it would sit in the market. This is how I would publish it. And then get signed off to make an offer. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes, quite common, you might not get any offers. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you might get 14 offers. Mm-hmm. And then you're in an auction system whereby you have knockout rounds and you keep going until you get a smaller group of publishers and the author will meet those publishers, have conversations. So when, when you say that, you mean people will, different publishers, let's say multiple publishers want yeah. to publish this book that's yeah. coming, this book idea, they will bid against each other. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And um, people, the author will then get to decide which offer they want to choose. Yeah. And I would say that from mm-hmm. the editor type point of view, yeah. we get sent like 15, like at, and at certain points in the year, like around Frankfurt and London Book Fair, that just spikes. Like that's yeah. like 35. And 35 what? A week proposals, proposals. Or a day. A day. A day. A day. So... From an editor's point of view, obviously the respect of the agent who sends it in is yeah. always very helpful. You know, if you think, hey, she's got like, she's got great taste, mm-hmm. which I've, you know, always thought with Abby. Great taste and integrity. And integrity, all the stuff. soul, and like there's a definition in her work um, that never strides out of the, the right course that I think, I mean, personally. Oh, thanks, guys. Um, but we get sent yeah. so many proposals. And I think that's the thing that, um, for listeners, like when they're thinking about crafting a book proposal, mm-hmm. you know, with or without an agent, they have to consider that just deluge. It's not that we are we don't want to read every proposal. I'm a, like the reason I'm in the industry is because like I'm a book maniac. It's not that I don't want to read every book yeah. proposal, but like I physically can't. Yes. <laughs> like okay. I've also got like ten books that I'm trying to like publish and yeah. I'm trying to manage. So it's a really like it's a really useful thing for people to understand that like whatever that book proposal, whatever is in that book proposal, on that first page, in that opening email, and I know it sounds like so fight, like because it's like, oh, you know, the first line. It doesn't have to be the first line. But there has to be something mm. that like attacks me, that like brings me into like, whoa, I can't put this down. I'm yeah, well, have- you need to be sold. I need to yeah. be like, I'm gonna have to cancel an internal meeting. Like that's what I do when yeah. I like Sorry, my publisher's probably in there. Fire me here. <laughs> um, but I've got, you know, I have to make time suddenly because I'm yeah. like, this is good. Because then, if I'm really excited yeah. about that book proposal, 
I will then try and like rush it through acquisition. So I don't even yeah. sometimes, I don't take it to editorial meetings. And what's acquisition? Can I just, before we yeah. go into that, can I just add, because I think that's such a crucial point. Yeah. And the, even the, the thing that links back to that is Romilly's getting 35 a day, but literary agencies at Bergstrom Studio, the agency that I, I run, mm-hmm. is getting hundreds of applications. And through that, agents are going through, going through and taking the, you know, the creme de la creme or the thing that resonates with them. You can send something to an agent and have like 15 agents turn you down and one call you within 24 hours and be Mm. like, oh my God, I love it. I'm obsessed. That's all you need. You just need one. Yeah. But the point is, it's like, even to get to that stage where you're a proposal rocking into Romilly's inbox, there's a huge, even more competitive Mm. part of the journey to get through in getting an agent's attention. So it's, I I think it's important to say to aspiring writers, you're not necessarily getting picked up because you're not a great writer because you don't have potential. It is just incredibly competitive. Mm. And sometimes there's a little bit of luck in what resonates and what doesn't. And it is really, really hard to anyone who's there trying to write or trying. It's not to do with your talent as a writer. It's often to do with the numbers. And and also like the people, the people who you send it to taste. Yes. Like, Look at their lists. Yes. Look at what they publish. Like, look at what they if, represent. If you're like sending uh, your proposal to like a historical fiction dude, mm. and yours is about like female savagery, like it may not resonate. Mm. Like it just may not. So, be like, be do your be, homework. Yeah, do your homework, and all, like especially of editors as well. Like I'm sure when you like came in to meet me, you were like, "What's she about? Like, what books yeah. does yeah, she well, have?" Yeah, well, it's well, it's um. It was almost like dating, isn't it? It's like, well, this is what I bring to the table. Mm -hmm. What do you bring to the table? But I also need you and you also need me. What I found interesting about the whole process is my integrity with who I went with was so important to me. And um, I remember where I was. I was, I was, I think I was on Carnaby Street when Abby, my book agent, called me and said... I love the way you're always in these iconic places when big things happen to you. (laughs) I'd be like, just got out of the bar. I was on Carnaby Street. I was on Carnaby Street at some... Uh, event and then I stepped outside because I got a call from you and I know I was waiting to hear and mm. it was that fa- that phase where I was like does anyone think that what I have to say matters and is important enough to be on a bookshelf mm. and then you called me and you said about the office that we had mm-hmm. and then that there were going to be meetings to follow and I didn't believe any of it was real even when I was publishing Girl Crush do you remember when I was coming to you with the idea and then mm. I was like but you know nothing's going to happen you were like what do you mean I'm your <laughs> fucking book agent I'm the one that's going to make this happen uh-huh. and I was like yeah well I've just got you know this I'm writing this like proposal to you but like it doesn't matter because it's not gonna I don't even know why or what that is and even as someone who has been a, a best-selling record-breaking published author I was still like surely not a novel you couldn't connect surely to that not. No. no you couldn't connect to the fact that you were a best-selling author you, you, you there was no there was like a cognitive dissonance there definitely yeah. was no because my idea of what that is uh, looks and sounds and feels different to how it does feel and also yeah, I get interesting talk I, more about that then yeah what's the what's the the disconnect what feels differently to what you expected it to so when I when before I became an author I had this idea of an author Mm -hmm. and um, not only because people tell me what that is like someone who studies years in English literature and does all of this stuff and and has all of these worthy degrees to be worthy of being in that space it was this idea that I needed to have gone down a certain route and down a certain line and then somehow that's when it's massive imposter syndrome stuff it's like surely not me surely not me who 
in my head, an author is like a white man in his 60s with like a well, beard. But they often are. Yeah. No, exactly. And then I was like... A lot like, of them were. Yeah, a lot of them were. Sorry, yeah. that's like, that's more... That's and it's, more and it's it, this idea of like, um, oh my God, I'm doing this, but how am I doing this? So many people feel like that. And yeah. there's this really funny thing happens when people go away to start writing a proposal, whereby they start writing it in this voice. Mm. And it's almost like they impersonate this the white man. Voice. Yeah, voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. authorial like, and I'm going to say this in a very da 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 way. And I, the amount of times when I get the first version of the proposal and I go back and I'm like, where's your voice? Mm. Where's your, whose yeah. voice is this? Where's this the person voice? I, I wanted to sign on? Who are you yeah. trying to sound like? Yeah. And you have to help the writer get out of their head yeah. into what they think an author is. And so it's, I think it's really common. But I would say when I saw Women Don't You Pretty A, like a, a fucking arresting title, let's be honest. Like, I was <laughs> like, hell yeah. Um, but also, your voice yes. in that proposal was wild. Like, it was angry, it was arresting, it was asking so much more of the reader than it, I felt that previous books I had been, like, sent in that in that area. Yeah. And I actually think, to your point of all those things you said about, like, oh, I, I didn't get my English diploma and hang it yeah, on my yeah, wall yeah. and I don't have a cravat. Um, yeah. All those reasons are why you are a best-selling author, because you aren't writing in academic prose, because you're not writing the way, like, other books have written, mm. you know, about this subject. Yes. You're writing from your point of view about the things that have affected you and the answers you found yourself. Yeah. And like that is what makes your writing so unique. Yeah. And like I really, really believe that's what makes it resonate so Thank much you. with like younger women and yeah. actually all women, like mothers and some men as well. Yeah. <laughs> but I was just constantly following my fire yes. and that's what I will need to do for the rest of my life if I'm going to do what's going to be right for me in that moment and create the work that is needed instead of the work I think people need because the second I step into that mm. is when I lose it sometimes with you I think that it's not so much like a leap of faith it's a leap of faith for in yourself that you mm. have to take yeah because you can do it you've done it and you will do it again but you have to find a way in which you allow yourself to know that and take yeah. that risk. Because I remember with Girl Crush, for example, like <laughs> when we all sat around and you'd sent me like a proposal and it was good, it was good, but we like we wanted to work it up. And you were just like, I don't know how to do this. I don't, I've never written a fiction book. And I was like, well, not many people who are a debut fiction writer have written a fiction book <laughs> yeah, before Florence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, that in of itself is the irony here. The dramatic yeah. irony is that like no one has written a book before before yeah. they start writing yeah. it yeah. and I felt like you really enjoyed that creative freedom of writing fiction oh my yeah. god oh my god I woke up every single morning excited to go back to the altar of writing the book and for me in terms of the writing process for Girl Crush it was not what I thought it would be I thought it would be regimented I thought it would have a structure um but I would come to things in the middle of the night. I would come to things during a hookup. I would come to things um, walking down the street. It was like I was living and breathing the book to the point where it was quite annoying and I was probably very consumed by it where I was not really interacting with people in a way that wasn't like, that would be good for the novel. This would be good. And it was just this constant, mm -hmm. like I was in it. I was seeing the characters everywhere. Yeah. Um, and that was really exciting. It's beautiful. It's immersive. Such a it was a beautiful immersive. process. And, and yeah. I, list I listened to music, the lyrics or the words or how the music made me feel would inspire the scene for a novel, That's for the novel. Um, 
And then I published that playlist and yes. uh, the music was inspected to the point where Romilly was like, okay, you're writing this a bit too much like a screenplay. <laughs> and it was, it was very like, um, even like the sex scene, which we've spoke about so many times, the sex scene in Girl Crush was initially 10,000 words long, which is about is that, the length of the was, dissertation. Yeah, I mean, I think it was actually over because yeah. I think that that sex scene... I had like trimmed, like oh, over, I had over. trimmed, and like I mean, we managed to get it down to I think like two thousand eight hundred. It was, it was epic. It was sex scene. It was, it was like, it was like, it was a blow. No pun intended. It was a blow by blow. I was like, but all these tiny little things, yeah. But I, I think I, I was surprised. But so to, again, to anyone who wants to write a novel, um, I actually didn't start on chapter one because it was too scary for me. Yeah. So I started in spoiler alert the breakup scene because I wanted to go straight into the chaos. I am mm-hmm. I loved writing something that was funny and I was enjoying it while I was doing it, making something just so like drama, comedy, over the top um, and giving this kind of like sarcastic tone to Arthur with what she was experiencing with Matt. Yeah. And I enjoyed it so much and then there was, again, coming back to the work and coming back to it and changing little things and um, giving him funny little one-liners and stuff. Tracy Emin of Techno. Exactly, Tracy Emin of Techno. <laughs> my favourite line, my um, favourite line, my favourite line. And that is how I kept going and kept going and kept going. And I actually, like, we talk about this all the time, Romilly, but my final manuscript was about 160,000 words. It was, long. it was, yeah, it was Bible length. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was amazing because what it And we showed, chopped it down. We did chop it down, yeah. You you received half of that. Girl it, Crush, if you've held it in your hands, is, that is 100,000 words. Yeah, yeah. And so, Women Don't Know You Pretty is about 40,000. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. we trimmed 60,000 words trimmed off. one and a half Women Don't Pretty out of yes. Girl Crush. But we also, we changed, you know, we changed a lot of the narrative. Like mm-hmm. we played around with plot lines um, and characters decided like within the book to like need more from you yeah. or to need more from, you know. The, or the, to be killed. Or to be killed. <laughs> or to be like, or to be like, you know, hiked off. Like, yeah. The book evolves as you de- like as you evolve your <laughs> as you devolve yourself as you evolve with them. Yes. Um, so, can you tell me a little bit about some of the characters and like who are your favorite characters to write? Yeah. Okay. My favorite character to write was probably it, ch- it will change all the time depending on the mood I'm feeling in. Mm. But perhaps on reflection, Evie, mm. because I think Evie was massively also inspired her demeanor by. Patsy Stone from Abfab, just in terms of her, when I imagine the way that Evie moves, it was very like pushing forward, constantly smoking a cigarette, always with sunglasses on, that has this such a powerful energy that you can't help but want to be liked by this woman, even when she's giving you every single reason to not trust her mm-hmm. with her words, but mm-hmm. to just be so powerful that you can't help but be drawn in. And that's what I wanted to have um, in contrast with Eartha, who's fresh out of this relationship, she's feeling very vulnerable. I really wanted that contrast with the characters so Evie also gave us so many like iconic one-liners and <laughs> yeah. um yeah she's definitely also her taste is heavily inspired by my taste I was basically like planning so many dream interiors when I was like planning her flat with the checkerboard floor <laughs> I was like oh yeah where's this coming from that's how I'd like to do my house um and I was yeah infusing a lot of my own personal taste into the novel for sure um that was really fun to write Evie and also with her character I wanted to keep it very ambiguous about because of the, the gaslighting that Arthur experiences with Evie I wanted to keep it very ambiguous about whether or not she was real so giving her the, the acronym of the name the Evie who is she is she real is Arthur imagining her and obviously like Arthur comes up against a lot of different people mm-hmm. in the book a lot of her followers have like really hot takes on 
who she is, how she is, mm. and how she's changing. Did you kind of get inspired by stuff that you've experienced, like that kind of narrative of people follow, like following you? Yeah, well, I think with Eartha's experience, she was so unprotected. And that's something that I'm seeing happen a lot online also with people on TikTok is they'll go viral and then they're held to the same fucking standard as like news politicians. Mm. And that's definitely something I've experienced as well, but probably to a lesser degree because my I, I've put myself into this arena. Whereas what, what I'm fascinated by is I've got friends who will go viral on TikTok and then be like, how the fuck do you do this all the time? I've got people looking at the inside of my bedroom. I've got people asking this of me. I've got people asking me to talk about this crisis because I've got a platform that I was literally given yesterday because I uploaded a video, left it, for, and it's and it's gone viral. Yeah. And it's mm. like, you should be doing more with your platform. You should be doing this, da, 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 da. And I completely, I'm not going to sit here and say people don't have a responsibility with their platform. That's not true. I know the power of having one. Mm. I have one myself. But there's this, this emphasis that we're putting on young girls who go viral on TikTok or Instagram or something. Uh, to suddenly be these spokespeople mm -hmm. for things they never put a stamp on themselves for being. And we're just kind of holding them to the same regard as like news reporters. And now, you know, like Matt Hancock was just on I'm a Celebrity. So it's like the politicians are coming. We're all merging. Oh yeah, well, it's all getting it's like middle like, ground, isn't it? And it's like that Andy Warhol quote about 15 minutes of fame. Yeah. Everyone's getting it now. Mm. And we're all kind of blending to the point where I feel like the culture of a celebrity is blending and merging to the point where in not not in a bad way it kind of means less now and it means what is a celebrity if we've got a-listers who we traditionally would just see on a red carpet going on tiktok telling their followers about like the person they're having sex with at the moment and it's just we're blurring the lines between it yeah. and i think that's what was really exciting to explore in girl crush with wonderland it was this heightened version of social media that i don't think we're that far off from but it was more yeah. interesting to kind of put it on steroids because i think people a bit like black mirror when people watch black mirror you can go oh god we're not that far off but if you're too close to it i think people are gonna go oh no that's that's not how things are do you ever wonder how celebrities order food like is sarah paulson a diet coke or a regular coke girly <laughs> some peasant coke no or how does sofia vergara order a pizza no nothing no tomatoes i cannot eat tomatoes, tomatoes? Yes. are you killed mushrooms not really okay. <laughs> If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. What you've done, and hopefully by our publishing it and like getting it right and mm -hmm. making it look good and all of these things, mm -hmm. has opened up books mm. to a new generation of people yeah. because I think one of my greatest fears is like yeah. we got to a place in book publishing where we were just publishing for that 60 year old white male dude because that's the, the people, reader because people will be the like that's the, that's the big readership <laughs> that's the market that's the market yeah. and I was like hang on a sec I and, know and I we know that those people we know factually that those people don't buy books written by yes. women yes. The whole, there's a whole market of interested readers that no one was publishing for yeah. this is, and that's yeah. what you're but did is it yeah. open people up and go oh wait books 
are being published that I need to for hear. For the girlies. Yeah. But also just for like, but about, <laughs> for like, the about them and about yeah. their needs and their wants. Yeah. And they're exp- reflecting their experiences. Their experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Girl Crush was the same. Yeah. Girl Crush people were like, wait, uh, I feel heard. Yeah. This is something that makes sense to me and my, like, my friends and my, like, mm-hmm. politics. How did you feel with, like, in terms of the process of writing a non-fiction and writing a fiction, how did that differ in terms of the level of pressure that you felt to maybe, mm-hmm. did you feel that you had more rights to write a non-fiction than you did for a novel, for example? Or, or how did that... Mm, I wouldn't say I felt I had more rights. Um, only maybe maybe with Women Don't You Pretty because I was talking from uh, my experience and I was talking about stuff that I'd already spoken about. So I was like, okay, I'm already like well-versed and well-practiced in talking in this way. It resonates with hundreds of thousands of people. Um, people are responding it, to this content already. There's was, a, and there's a narrative it was less that of has a been risk. developed. Yeah. It was, it was yeah. a less of a risk for me to publish nonfiction. It was scary though because I was like, well, fuck, I, I have this audience. If, if this amount of people read this, I have a responsibility to say things right. I have a responsibility to say things correctly. Correctly, even though in a few years' time, uh, I might change my mind about this, which I have on so many things, um, mm-hmm. and not in, in a drastic way, right. but in a way that I want to include more nuance. I felt I had a big responsibility to get every single thing right, and then when it came to fiction, that went all out the fucking window. I wrote the messiest characters, uh, politically incorrect, saying the wrong things, uh, doing their best, you know. But I think I really wanted to add that humanist to girl crush because it's just so freeing. Yeah, isn't it? it is so you freeing, can, and also, you also, break also the I know, rules. I know can, a lot of my audience. You can break the still, walls as well, can't you? You can kind of break like the like systems. I know that a lot of my audience also. So I've I've taken my audience to this place of being aware of social justice social justice issues and feminism, and I also was like, well, fucking I, I, no. People would message me basically saying, um, "Floss, I've read Women Don't You Pretty, and I feel crap. I feel awful about myself because I'm crying over a boy. I'm heartbroken. Am I a bad feminist?" And I was like, "Oh my god, no, 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 no. Have I got it all wrong? Am I not putting enough humanness into my work? Yeah. Um, am I telling people you need to be the person? And I'm obviously not saying that, but I think that when you don't show your messiness or your humanness, mm. just because you don't fucking want to and not everyone's entitled to see a mess on social media um i was like oh god people think i'm a perfect feminist fuck no absolutely not um so then when i wrote girl crush Mm. i wanted to show all of these mistakes and all of this humanness and even questioning your sexuality you know earth has just come out she doesn't know what the fuck she's doing and so many people that message me are like hey i've just come out as bisexual and i don't know what i'm doing and i just wanted to normalize it all normalize the mess normalize not knowing what you're doing um normalize being an amazing friend and loving your friends and then also being a really shitty friend because you've got so much when a text from a person comes in and it's another fucking task on your plate (laughs) like just all of this stuff i wanted to normalize because i think so many women in particular i feel like that the, there's been a shift between women needing to be perfect housewives and now we need to be the perfect feminist. We need the perfect morals. Not only do we need the perfect morals, we have to display them on social media all the time, constantly, or else. And I wanted to write this book where people were kind of given a little permission slip to be a bit more messy. Yeah, I feel like what you do is you destabilise the notion of perfect. Like, okay. the notion of perfect is a problem. It's a problematic, full stop for everyone. Yeah. <laughs> like, it really, like, it's a really destructive I'm word. I'm trying to do it. It doesn't yeah. exist. It it's doesn't exist. It's a false negative. Yes. Like, <laughs> it's not, an, like, it's not a goal. It's not the end of anything. Like, it's never something you should progress towards. There's no destination. There's no destination, barring, like, it's a cul-de-sac of your own hatred and yes. your yeah. lack of fulfillment from yeah. just constantly trying to overperfect. Mm-hmm. But, I do think what you do, like when you're writing the, the fiction, is you were just being like, you're writing a kind of cautionary tale about how women can almost be assaulted by perfectionism. Perfectionism won't save you. And it's a thing I'm still learning myself also. 
Arthur. I needed Arthur to be bisexual because there was no books that I read when I was younger um, or anything. I, I saw The L Word, which was just iconic, but just so drama and chaos. And I wanted something that was a bit more tender, a bit more real. Um, and that was this kind of raw coming out story that wasn't like a massive focus on it of, of being perfect. And even, even though there was the, the, the thing of like not being accepted from either world, which is such a stereotypical bisexual experience, it is a stereotypical stereotypical bisexual experience for a reason. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really important for me to write a bisexual main character yeah. because um, every single person that has read it has said, I never read, everyone has messaged me saying, I feel like you have stolen my thoughts, which is just wild to me yeah. because it's such a universal experience for some of the things. And yeah. also the thing is, is um, when I was writing the novel, I was like, okay, what kind of an experience do I want Eartha to have? Do I want it to be incredibly positive to show that like, okay, uh, queer people can have this really happy romantic love life that goes incredibly well um, or do I want to show how real it is and also make it really romantic because we deserve some of that as well mm -hmm. and um, like romanticise the experience slightly yeah, to and give also that I'm like, escapism I, I wanted to give this joy. realistic like Arthur does not know what she's doing the first time she has sex but she does have a lovely time and you know it wasn't going to be like oh yeah Arthur gets fucked with a strap on by Phaedra and she's just all of a sudden this experienced uh, like having lesbian sex with Phaedra and it, there's so many ways that you can tell a story a queer story that's just so unrealistic mm -hmm. that I don't think any of my audience would have related to and also there's good and bad sex in every yeah, like yeah. in every sexuality, yeah. so it's like so <laughs> that's why we were like with her second like sexy with jazz with jazz. Yeah. We were like, it could probably be like a bit terrifying a bit, and a bit like what bit, is going yeah. on. Yeah. But I just because in every trope like that, bad mm. sex is bad sex. Yeah, like, one of the most universal experiences. Absolutely, <laughs> and I think. Um, what kind of fears do you think people have when it comes to writing and publishing a book? Because I think one of the things is fear of changing your mind about what you've published. And mm. I never want anyone to fear publishing work because they might eventually change their mind in the future. The nature of being human is that the mind isn't a solid beast. Like that's mm. the whole nature of humanity being curious and having an agile mind is like is, is for that reason. So frankly, like we should all be allowed to change our minds. I'm obviously not going to be publishing hate speak. So like maybe <laughs> if, yeah. if, if that's the way. But other than that, change your mind, mm. write a book, delve into something, dip your toes in, feel your way through. It's the best way you can try. Like, mm. and ultimately, no one is going to hold you to account if you suddenly discover something later on. Mm. I mean, the amount of books that have been written in history where suddenly they're like, and then they find a new historical discovery and they're like, oh, wait, the they, had, they changed the intro. They're, they're, yeah. like, they're like, the Neolithics were alive 150,000 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we got yeah. that wrong. Yeah, the whole like, thing. You, being wrong, again, going back to the perfectionism thing, yes, right, yeah. part of, I think that you're worried about publishing. I think that your worry stems from the perfections Yes, thing. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. we all need to be like way better at letting that go mm -hmm. yeah. because it's destructive. Yeah. So I, that's my opinion. I think it comes back down to the medium as well because, you know, a, an Instagram post can be deleted. Edit caption. A, a blog yeah. post yeah. is, you know, transient. Uh, TikTok lasts a few seconds. There's, there is a permanency 
around books. That, Which that is does, why it's brave as fuck. That does, exactly. Yeah. And, and it does exist. Like, you know, mm. Let's not shy away from that. It is a completely different thing. So the first conversation that I have with clients before I work with them, like, is this the right book? And is this the right time? Because a book isn't going to go away. It is mm. going to follow you around and it is going to be brought up and m- mentioned every time you do a talk or, you know, it, it, will, it will be part, you know, that's why the strategy agent's role is definitely about the bigger long-term strategy of an author and what they want to achieve. But I agree with Romilly completely. I don't think that means that we need to be afraid. And I think there needs to be more understanding and more acceptance of humans evolving, humans being contradictory, humans learning. One of the things that I was going to mention to you, Floss, is we've been talking about the fact that your book has allowed new audiences Mm. into bookshops and into books themselves. Mm. Um, I would also say from inside publishing, you perhaps don't know this, so this might come as a surprise. It probably won't come as a surprise to Abby. Mm. But when a book has become successful, when a book has stepped way above everyone's expectations, been a bloody record breaker, bestseller, everyone inside publishing takes notice. It's Mm. not like, it's that the whole genre, we call it like genre breaker, because it breaks the genre. It's not a classification of a book that people have previously made any room on their lists, room at their publishing house. So the whole of publishing gear shifts. So that more young women writers will be published okay. and more agents will come forward with proposals. So not only are you like... You're d- proof of a market that exists you are, you are and proof, that works. You, 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 you are proving a market exists. Right. So I would say that the after effects of Women Don't Know You Pretty, like not just from readers, but from the amount percentage in the year mm. after and the year after that of young women being published will have changed. Yeah. And that is like an exceptional feat. And mm. I, I don't think I've ever told you that. No, you haven't. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. okay. Uh, well, that's fucking amazing to hear and just makes you want to do it again and again and again and again. So we're now going to move over to listener questions. Uh, but this time you're going to be asking me the questions. Usually I read them out myself, but go for it. Why did you choose the name Eartha? So I always told myself if I was ever going to have a child... They would be called Arthur. And then I decided to spare the child and just give it to the protagonist <laughs> of my novel instead. Because I just, something about the name, I've, I've never wanted children. It's never been a thing in my life, but I just had this name reserved for something big. I was like, it's, it's got to be, it's so gorgeous. I also have a few book titles in my head where I'm like, this needs to be in 20 years when I write this novel it will be this is the time I've got it in my head I have all these like sound bites and Eartha was just this big sound bite and I needed a name for my protagonist and so I just gave her it and also because of Eartha Kit and she has that iconic clip where she's talking about not compromising herself for a man um so yeah it just kind of came from that love it did you purposely spell Evie just with the two letters to make her seem more kind of AI like so not AI-like, um, but I really like this question because Evie was intentionally left without a first and last name because I wanted the reader to think and question whether Evie was real, mm-hmm. whether she was Eartha in some ways or another, because um, you, you just never know her first name. You don't know Eartha's last name. There's all that confusion that I wanted to create. And there's similarities between them. There are a lot of similarities between them that I had so much fun plotting into the novel. And I wanted I wanted them to kind of mirror each other in a way that they were, it was a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde vibe going on with them. And yeah, I, I just think it was, it was definitely intentional to keep her name Evie. Would you want to turn Girl Crush into a movie or a TV series? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. 
Absolutely. Does Phaedra or Eartha's playlist actually exist? So there was a glitch with this. So I really wanted the Spotify playlist link to work, but because it was private, the link expires in seven days and I thought it was going to be a permanent link. So the link I put into the book is a link to the playlist that Eartha and Phaedra made for each other. Um, So they do exist, but instead I made the Girl Crush Listen Along playlist, which also has some of the songs that they made for each other in there. What's your favourite chapter and why? The breakup scene, just because you wrote it's it first funny. As well. yeah. It's funny, and I enjoyed writing it. I enjoy writing it so much and just taking everything to the most ridiculous degree. I think I really have fun. I have a lot of fun dramatizing things. So the breakup scene is one of my favorite scenes. Um, another favorite one, which everyone in my immediate life has told me they cried over, was the very short chapter where Eartha is on the phone to her mum. Um, landslide I think it's chapter three and um, I remember when I handed everything into you you were like there needs to be something between this here there needs to be something between the breakup and Eartha moving on and then that's when I wrote the uh, the scene with with her and and I cried the entire time writing it so I was um, at my kitchen table had all my candles on and I just wrote it in the night through the night the whole thing Um, and I cried the entire time fucking writing it thinking I was there when (laughs) is Girl Crush coming out in paperback I don't actually know August I don't think we have August I didn't know we had a date I thought we were just planning the cover no August (laughs) okay all your books come out in August August, 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 okay, August. Okay, thanks. I know now. Um, it's coming out in August and there is going to be something a little special. Something additional. Yes. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to be doing a bonus chapter. Um, You're going to reveal what it is? I No, not yet. A lot of people have asked about this. Uh, yes, it's to do with Eartha and Phaedra. So there will be a bonus chapter about what happens or what happened. And I feel like that, stunning. I feel like that is something that people are slightly tantalised. Yes, yeah. I've, I've had a lot of questions about it. A lot of people want closure. Some people want a second book. Um, the, problem is, <laughs> the problem is with all these things is like everyone wants closure for relationships, but has it? I don't know if I've ever got closure no, for a relationship. No. It doesn't exist. How did you overcome the first blank page? Okay, so yeah, I've already spoke about this in terms of I didn't actually start on the first page of the book. It was just too frightening for me to start the first sentence. The way I wrote the book was I had this skeletal structure of this is what happens in this chapter, this is what happens in this chapter. And I wouldn't have been able to do that without Abby telling me, this is what you do, it's easier, you need a structure. Because then I can just get, okay, chapter three today, boom, here's a little synopsis I've written for it. I would not be able to do it without that. If if it's just ideas and thoughts swirling around my fucking head in the air and I've got to catch them about, oh yeah, let's just write this breakup scene. I need a little synopsis and then I go and write it. Mm -hmm. And I just start with them moving. I walk into the room, he slammed this, whatever, whatever. And then it just follows. I didn't plan out a single chapter in terms of its details. I didn't know what was going to happen in the chapter. So with the sex scene with Phaedra and Earth, for example, I didn't know that they were going to end up fucking in front of a mirror. I just, it just happened Mm -hmm. as I wrote the scene and as things unfolded, I was like, okay, what would happen in a hookup here? What would, maybe this would be a bit awkward. Maybe she spilled some wine on the carpet and be pissed off about it, but need to be in the moment. And all of this stuff, you've got kind of get into the characters fucking cliche as it is Mm -hmm. and be like okay what might happen here what could add a bit of comedy and contrast with what they've just been doing and Mm -hmm. all of this kind of stuff so I never actually planned out a scene uh but maybe I had in my notes app like a funny thing that I wanted to get in somewhere and then I based a scene around that so the process of writing it all was really different but in terms of a blank page when you're looking at a blank page I had a friend give me some incredible advice once that she didn't it was so flippant to her but for some reason it really resonated with me 
and isn't that deep. She just said, uh, write one sentence a day. Tell yourself, I will write one sentence a day. And you never fucking end up writing one sentence. You just begin. So you go, well, I can only write a sentence. And then it follows and it follows and it follows and it follows. And before you know it, you've written a thousand words. Mm -hmm. And you're like, wow, I did a fucking thousand words today. That's or amazing. Or 220,000 words. Also, most of writing a book is actually tweaking, editing, judicious pruning. What you, I think there's a fear of what you get down on the page. It's not going to be good enough. That's not very good. That's not a good I sentence. Know, that's final. But it's yeah. never going to be. The no. first draft of every book I've ever read has never been a work of art. It, writing isn't just writing. It's mm. rewrites. It's edits. It's oh tweaks. My. It's playing. So many eyes going over and that's, it. And that's why there is such a role as an editor I mean, there wouldn't yes. be a role as an editor yeah. if, like, if, you, if the first thing you had to put down was had to be like this I didn't know before publishing, I didn't know every author had an editor. Yeah. Like, that's just... And like, you know, we can be honest as, you know, with Girl Crush, you know, the editing process, we did lots and lots of edits. Mm -hmm. and, so many. And like some, you know, there might be a couple of sentences that came out first time and we haven't touched them, but most sentences get touched, yes. tweaked, yes. Yeah. replaced, rediscovered by the author, by the, by the author, by the editor, by the author the second time mm -hmm. round. Copy and editor, also by the copy editor, lawyer. by the lawyer. Like lawyer. there are so yeah. many, there are Every, so yeah. many people over those words. Yeah. So I would say, don't be precious about the words that you write. Be precious about the intention with which you write them and the story. And the story. Be precious with yeah. the story. Final question, which feels like it's ending on a bit of a downer. Did you <laughs> did you enjoy writing Girl Crush? Were there times when it was stressful? Yes, of course it was stressful <laughs> to write. Oh my God. Um, again, all those thoughts that come into my head. Why the fuck am I writing a novel? Uh -huh. um, why me? Why am I the person to do this? Why is this a story worth writing? Um, all of those crippling self-doubts that come in and also being told that some of my work that I loved needs to go. So some something that's, again... That's that's at me. Floss is saying yes, that at I'm me, by the way. Romilly. You might, just in case you don't realise that, Floss is looking at me and pointing at me. <laughs> and we all know what she means. Stealing my words. <laughs> Taking my words Blow job scene. Can't talk about blow job scene anymore. Blow job scene can't Honestly, Abby, you've barely heard about the blow job scene in, in the amount I've heard there was, about no, it. So there was a scene in Girl Crush where there was a blowjob and it got cut and I was deeply attached to it for comedic value but now I don't literally don't give a fuck about it Romilly was like if you want to you can add it to the paperback and I actually just I agree with your yeah. decision a year later and I'm like <laughs> absolutely it needed to fucking go but did I hear the end of that blowjob scene no Floss? but not because in any meeting in any meeting Floss would be like, be like publicity and marketing she'd be like it was brought up in every like, meeting yeah, actually it what's it really was. interesting about maybe doing something of Waterstones is the blade job chapter. I and could, I would be like, how are you skewing this I could in? ram it in. Kill your darlings. <laughs> Kill your darlings. It's a very yeah. horrible yeah. part. It's a stressful part. Yeah. Because you get attached. So yeah, I got. I remember I was literally getting a pedicure crying with my little <laughs> piggies and the little Again, such an spa. iconic place to be like <laughs> receiving these news. I was, I, and then Romilly, I got the, the, the script back and I sent a message to either Romilly or Abby, I think like Girl Crush group chats, fucking everyone. Yeah. And I was just like, I am so I'm distraught. I'm grieving. I was grieving the book I thought I was going to write and it wasn't going to be the book I thought I was going to write. And I didn't even know, again, first time into the whole fucking thing, I didn't know that a part of um, writing a book was grieving the, again, the killing your darlings. And what yeah. that means is killing the parts that you're very attached to, but don't serve the, the purpose book. of the book. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was it was new for me. And that was probably the hardest part about it. But I, I really fucking enjoyed writing fiction. And if only because it took me so much out of the internet and into a completely different world. Oh my God, that was such a fucking wonderful chat. I've actually, I did most of the press for Girl Crush around the book launch, so it's been a little while since I've spoken about it. And it's just completely rejuvenated 
my love for it in a way. I really hope that this has been useful to you and for you to see that publishing doesn't have to be some kind of scary boys club where you need to get a certain degree to be in it or you need to know this person or need to know that person. Thank you to Romilly and Abby for joining me today. Abby can be found on Instagram as Abigail Bergstrom and her agency is at bergstrom.books. Romilly, my book editor, can be found on Instagram as at Romilly Morgan and her imprint is at brazen.books. If you've enjoyed listening, then please share this with your friends. To keep updated with all the latest episodes as and when they drop, you can follow exactly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget, you can join me every week for Ask Floss, where I answer all of your questions from how to be self-assured to exploring your sexuality. Whatever it is, you can ask me anything over there and I'll fucking answer it. Send your questions to the WhatsApp number at plus four four seven eight nine zero three zero two six six five. Subscribe to Extra Floss to listen right now. You can visit extrafloss.com to start your free trial and get access wherever you get your podcasts, or you can visit exactly on Apple Podcasts and hit try free at the top of the page. I want to give a massive thank you to the formidable Black Honey who composed the original theme music. You can find them on Instagram at at BlackHoneyUK and check out their latest album, written and directed. This is a Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment production. My producer is Millie Charles, assistant producer is Ella McLeod, executive producer is Carly Mayle, the production coordinator is Lily Hambly, and I want to give a special thanks to Chris Skinner, Jonathan Imiri, Ryan O'Meara, and Teddy Riley for additional production, and a big thanks to our engineers, Josh Gibbs and Gully Lawrence Tickle, and mix engineer, Jay Beale. 